evidence and answers. Do you know what you believe and why? These are essential questions that you should know in sharing your faith with others. Breaking down strongholds by sharing your testimony is something we are all capable of doing. Are you up for the challenge? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we begin with message two, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's our own host, Pat Zucran, with part one of his teaching entitled, Why I Am a Christian, Evidences for Faith. Thank you for coming here tonight and being a part of our conference each year, I think this is our 10th year we're doing this conference, and we get to bring, bring some of the finest speakers from all over the world to come and equip us to engage our world for Christ. I hope many of you get to listen to our radio show, Evidence and Answers, where we get to interview fine Christian scholars like Greg Kokel and many others. And one of the things we're excited about, we're on the number one talk show station in Manila. And, you know, Metro Manila has a population of about 35 million people. So we're really excited about that. As many of you, I grew up in a typical Japanese Buddhist home. And as I got to my teenage years, I began asking the questions we all ask. Why am I here? What am I going to devote and give my life to? Why is anything here? Why is the universe here? What is going to be the purpose of my life? What happens after death? I began asking all those questions. And of course, the first religion that I was looking for answers in was Buddhism, because I grew up here at the YBA doing judo and kendo and basketball and swimming and all that. So I studied Buddhism, and I soon came to realize that it was not a livable system. Well, then I began studying the other world religions, and found that most of them were based on legends and myths. And so, as a young teenager, eventually, I just became an atheist. I just thought all religions are false and filled with legends, and really, none of them are based in any kind of reality. And so I simply just became an atheist. Well, when I was 18, I was introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ at a tiny Baptist church out in IA, and for the first time, I heard the message of the gospel. And it was the greatest message I had ever heard, that there is a God who created the universe, who created each one of us, and longs for a relationship with us, and designed all of us for a mission to fulfill. Well, so I was intrigued by that message, and I prayed in the pew that day. I said, God of the Bible, if you're real, if this is really real, I'd like to know you. Well, the next day I went to my school priest, and I told him what I heard in church about the gospel, about God, about Jesus Christ, God's Son, and all this. And he kind of just smirked, and he said, well, any religion is fine if it makes you happy. You know, one is not better than the other. That makes you happy, uh, you know, okay, that's fine. But uh, don't think any religion is better than any other. And I thought, wait a minute. I was kind of stunned. Here is a priest who has studied this all his life, and he doesn't really seem 
to believe the Bible or that Jesus Christ lived any kind of miraculous life or the resurrection or anything. Well, I eventually took Bible class from him in high school just because I wanted to learn the Bible. And I learned all the errors in the Bible and that it was really not a historical book, that many of the ideas come from pagan mythology, that Paul got all his philosophy from the Greeks and all. Jesus is simply another demigod like Hercules and those folks. And all these ideas are borrowed from pagan religions. And the miracles have all naturalistic explanations. And I was learning all of this and really began to challenge my belief in God and the truth of Christianity. And so I began to wander and I thought, you know, Christianity is the greatest story I've ever heard. But if it's also based on myths and legends, then really it's not for me. And so I began a quest to discover, is Christianity really true? And as I researched, I learned there's compelling evidence that God exists, that Jesus Christ made a very unique claim to be the unique one and only divine Son of God and confirmed his claim in a very miraculous way. So in this session, I'm just going to share with you five basic evidences that affirm the truth of Christianity. And first, God provides the best answer to the meaning of our existence and the existence of the universe. All right? God provides the best answer to why the universe is here and the meaning of our existence. For if God does not exist, then ultimately we live in a meaningless universe, void of hope, void of any significance. If God does not exist, we're simply products of chance, an accident of time, space, and, and natural causes. We live for a brief moment just a brief moment, a tiny speck in this vast universe. We live for a brief moment only to be extinct forever and ever and ever. And we know that the universe is expanding and running out of energy, and eventually the universe comes to an end, and everything ends in extinction and annihilation. So we must ask ourselves, well, what if the universe never did come into existence? Would it make any difference? If death is it, if the only sure thing we face is our extinction and annihilation, then ultimately, what is the meaning of our existence here? The scientist who strives hard to improve human life and discover great discoveries of this great universe, all his work ends in death and annihilation. The doctor who fights for life to improve and extend human life, all his work ends in extinction and annihilation. The soldier who goes overseas to fight for justice and freedom, all of that ends in extinction and annihilation. If God does not exist, ultimately then, life is meaningless. It's void of hope. It's void of significance. If God does not exist, then morality is also meaningless. What difference does it make whether I live like Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa. It's ultimately meaningless. You know, I remember I was speaking on the radio and had a discussion with one of the most popular atheists out there. Uh, he had one of the most popular atheist websites out there, Common Sense Atheism. And we were on a radio debate, and I said, if God does not exist, ultimately, life is ultimately meaningless, void of meaning, void of hope, void of purpose. And he said, well, that's just your opinion. All right? And I said, no, it's not my opinion. 
I'm simply repeating what you atheists have been saying for over two centuries. And he said, like who? Well, I said, what about Bertrand Russell? One of the most popular atheist philosophers that have lived in modern times. And Bertrand Russell said this, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And I said, I'm not making that conclusion. I'm simply repeating what you atheists have been saying for over 200 years. I remember stating this at, in a communist country in East Asia. And I remember speaking at a university there, and the students read that, and I went on to the next slide, and they said, no, go back, go back, go back. And they were just reading this over and over and over again, and you could see it for the first time in their eyes. They had come to a realization for the first time, the implications of their atheistic worldview, that if God does not exist, life is ultimately void of meaning, significance, and hope. This is illustrated here in a cartoon of Dilbert. It opens with Dilbert asking his dog a simple question. What is my motivation today? To which the dog bird replies, you're a temporary arrangement of matter sliding towards oblivion in a cold, uncaring universe. Dilbert asks, that's it? And his dog says, did I already say needy? Kind of illustrates the point there. Few understand the horrific conclusions if God does not exist, but this is Indeed, the fate of men and women, if atheism is true, we must just come to grips with the futility of life in which all things end in death and extinction. So I believe that God answers the question, best answers the question, to the meaning of life. Now, the second evidence for the existence of God comes from the origin of the universe. God best explains the origin of the universe. Okay? And this is called the cosmological argument, or the argument from first cause, or the law of causality. Okay? It's a very simple argument, and it goes like this. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Okay? Very simple. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Well, the universe has a beginning, therefore the universe must have a cause. Something must have caused the universe to come to be. Now, how do we know the universe has a beginning? Well, the scientific evidence is pretty compelling that the universe has a beginning. Scientists call this now the Big Bang. And we have a great NASA scientist, former NASA scientist here with us, who wrote a book on that. She's sitting back there, Leslie Wickman be doing some workshops, but the scientific community, and, and the evidence is pretty compelling, the universe exploded into being out of nothing, right? Then there are several lines of evidence for this. One is Einstein's theory of relativity. Einstein was trying to figure out how is it that the universe holds its place and doesn't just collapse in due to the force of gravity. Well, through his great mathematical equations, he figured out the universe does not collapse in on itself because the universe is expanding, all right? And if we go backwards, 
there's a beginning point to the universe. Well, what Einstein proved in theory has been confirmed by the scientific evidence. The radiation afterglow, Penzias and Wilson, built a great radar dish, and they were looking for signs of extraterrestrial life. But wherever they moved their huge radar dish, they were picking up this microwave signals from all parts of the universe. And they had discovered the radiation afterglow, the results of a huge explosion that began the universe. And they won a Nobel Prize for their discovery of the radiation afterglow. Then we have the red shift. Edwin Hubble noticed that as the galaxies move farther apart, they turn redder. And that was called the red shift. In other words, the universe is expanding. And finally, the second law of thermodynamics, that the universe is running out of usable energy. All the evidence is pointing that the universe has a beginning. Now, most of the scientific community is pretty much the vast majority of scientists and those who study astrophysics and physics are convinced the universe has a beginning. Stephen Hawking, who doesn't hold to a theistic worldview, says this in his book, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Hey, Einstein's theory of relativity, time, matter, and energy are all interconnected. You can't have one without the other. In other words, the universe exploded into being out of nothing. Steven Weinberg is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he is a staunch atheist, all right? But he says this, in the beginning, there was an explosion, not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. In other words, the universe has a beginning. The universe exploded into being out of nothing. Well, what's that sound like? Genesis 1-1, don't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word there is bara. Out of nothing, God created the universe. All right? Now, the fact that the universe has a beginning, you can only draw two conclusions. All right? Either the universe came from nothing or something greater than the universe caused the universe. Right? The law of cause and effect. Every effect has a cause. Every cause has an effect, and no effect is greater than its cause. If the universe is in effect, then whatever caused the universe is greater than the universe. Whatever created time is greater than time. You're talking an eternal being, right? You're talking a tremendously powerful being, a tremendously intelligent being. The God of the Bible is a very reasonable conclusion, right? To say the universe came from nothing is a very unreasonable conclusion, right? We know from science, from logic, nothing produces nothing, produces nothing, produces nothing, right? What's the most reasonable conclusion for the cause of the universe? Well, whatever caused the universe is greater than the universe. And God is a very reasonable candidate here, all right? So the first argument for the existence of God is that the universe has a beginning, okay? And whatever has a beginning must have a cause. The third evidence here is the argument from design, where this is called the teleological argument, and it goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe displays highly complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. 
comes from Romans chapter 1. For what may be known of God has been clearly seen from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. Every design has a designer. A good illustration is this. Suppose you are flying to California, but unfortunately in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, your plane goes down in, in the ocean. But you manage to survive, and you make it to an island, and the island appears to be abandoned. doesn't appear to be anyone on that island except you. Now, you go walking around the island, and you find this on the ground, all right? A watch. What do you automatically assume? Somebody was there. Somebody dropped it. Does anyone assume that the wind and the waves and the natural forces caused this watch? No. Could they have? They could have. I mean, they could be incredibly lucky. And the wind and the waves and the lightning and, and the stones rubbed together and, and somehow we got this. It's possible. But what's the more reasonable conclusion? Well, the more reasonable conclusion is when you see something with such complexity, many parts, with design for an intended purpose, that points to an intelligent cause, an intelligent designer. And that's what we're seeing in the sciences. All right, and we'll have a couple workshops on that with Leslie Wickman and Dave Beers tomorrow about the design we're seeing in the universe. From the telescope to the microscope, the more we're learning in the sciences, it's pointing to intelligent design. For example, the forces that sustain the universe are delicately balanced and sit on a razor's edge. Okay? For example, the force of gravity is precisely tuned so that the universe expands at just the right rate. If the force of gravity were just a fraction weaker, the universe would expand faster. Then matter would disperse too quickly so that none of it would clump enough to form galaxies and planets. If the force of gravity were a fraction stronger, the universe would expand too slowly and matter would clump up so effectively that the universe would collapse into a super-dense lump before any solar-type stars could form. Astronomer Hugh Ross states that the expansion rate of the universe cannot differ by more than one part in 10 to the 55th power. All right, That's how precise the force of gravity seems to be fine-tuned so that we can have the universe that we have now. Our solar system, Hugh Ross, Astronomer Hugh Ross states that there's 51 fine-tuned parameters to our galaxy that allow us to have life on this planet. For example, we're exactly the right distance from the sun. Just a little bit closer, we would burn. Just a little bit farther away, we'd be too cold. We are protected from dangerous asteroids and meteors because we've got a big brother that watches over us and is the precise size that we need to protect us and that is Jupiter. Okay? It's the largest planet there in our solar system next to the sun. And its gravitational force pulls these asteroids away from the Earth, protecting the Earth. The moon is just the right size to stabilize the axle tilt of the Earth, its rotation, and control the tides. Not only do we live in a just right universe, we live in a just right solar system. Take a look at biology. The brain is an incredible machine. We have not yet been able to build a computer that can do what the human brain can do. 
And the human brain is only a, a four-pound piece of equipment about that big, right? Yet, it is a remarkable machine. We have not been able to design a computer that can do what the human brain can do. Atheist Carl Sagan said this about the human brain. He noted that the genetic information in the brain expressed in bits is probably comparable to the total number of connections among neurons, about 100 trillion, 10 to the 14th power. Okay, so if we wrote out all the information that's in your brain in book form, it would fill some 20 million volumes. So we could stack those books from here right up to the moon. That's how much information is in the brain. He stated, the brain is a very big place in a very small space. The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine more wonderfully designed than any devised by humans. If you see uh, my iPad here, as you're walking through the forest, you wouldn't assume it came about by natural forces. How much more the human brain? If you saw Osimo here, this robot designed by Honda engineers walking through the parking lot, you would not assume it came about by natural forces. Automatically, you would assume there is intelligent design behind this. And some of the best engineers in the world, and we have invested billions of dollars to design Osimo, and yet Osimo still cannot do what the human body can do. The human body is an incredible machine. And now when we go to microbiology, to the telescope, we are discovering intelligent design. DNA now is one of the most powerful and compelling evidences that indeed an intelligent designer exists. There are 1,200 to 2,000 letters or bases that are needed to build just one protein. So it's highly improbable that a single protein molecule could form just by chance. Dr. Stephen Meyer writes this. He said, the probability of the right amino acids forming the precise sequence needed to form just one protein molecule is one chance in 100,000 trillion, 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 on and on and on. That's 10 with 125 zeros behind it. All right, and that's just for one protein molecule. Dr. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, stated this. It's a hat when he completed his work, speaking at the White House, he stated this. It's a happy day for the world. It is humbling and awe-inspiring for me that we caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously only known to God. Atheist Richard Dawkins, and the leader of the New Atheist Movement, he states this. He said, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. Now, those of you in computer and system software design know, all right, that the computer code is tremendously complex. You guys spend hours and hours and hours, weeks and weeks and weeks, looking at all those digits all right, and just a, a two or three digits that are wrong can crash the entire program. That's how precise computer programming is, and DNA is that precise. Bill Gates th said this, DNA is far, far more complex than any software ever created. You would not conclude that a monkey jumped on a computer 
and just bang keys at random and got the program from Microsoft Windows. The possibilities of that are just astronomical, all right? Now, it could happen, okay? It could happen. The one in a trillion, trillion chance, it could happen. But what's the more reasonable conclusion here? Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.